Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 259 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have Joe Eames. Hey, everybody. Amy Knight. Hello. Corey House. Hi, everybody. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. I'm going to do a quick shout out about newbie remote conf. If you're new or want to speak to the problems that new people have, call for proposals is open. So go check that out. It's going to be online. Uh, We have a special guest this week, and that is Ryan McDermott. Hi, how's it going? Do you want to give us a brief introduction? Who you are, why you're awesome? (laughs) Don't know about the latter, but yes, I, yeah, I'm, uh, my name is Ryan. I work as an engineer at Google, and I have been a professional developer for five years now, if I may call myself professional. Um, and yeah, I do mostly uh, mostly front-end stuff, and I've done full stack before and, you know, everything in between. So I'm, I'm curious, do you write clean code over at Google? <laughs> I try to write, I try to write clean code. You know, it's kind of a values thing, right? It's like, you know, like the golden rule, you try to treat everyone the way you want to be treated, but, uh, you know, occasionally, occasionally you fall short. And, uh, I, I've been a, a hypocrite many times on clean code. I've probably written functions that have eight parameters and that are a thousand lines long. And I've done everything bad before. Yeah. We actually brought you on to talk about your, your project, the clean code JavaScript, um, repo that you have out there, which is I don't know if I would call it a style guide, um, but it's it's definitely a clear, hey, this is, you know, this is how you write clean, good, easy to read, easy to maintain JavaScript. Do you want to kind of explain what it is and where you, where you got this from? Yeah, yeah. So this episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Are you searching for a new job that can be stressful, scary, and time consuming? Pushy recruiters try to sell you on roles you don't actually want, and the job boards make you feel like you're throwing your resume into a black hole never to be seen again. And sometimes you go all the way through the interview process just to find out at the very end that the salary, offer, or company culture doesn't match what you're looking for. Hired is the world's most intelligent talent matching platform for full-time and contract opportunities in engineering development, design, product management, data science, sales, and marketing. We make your job search faster, focused, and stress-free. Instead of endlessly applying to companies and hoping for the best, Hired puts you in control of when and how you connect with compelling new opportunities. After completing one simple application, top employers apply to hire you. And on Hired, you receive personal interview requests and upfront salary information so you can make informed decisions about what what opportunities to pursue over a condensed timeline. Hired offers access to more than 4,000 innovative employers, including big brand names like Facebook and smaller emerging startups. The size and type of company you want to connect with is totally up to you. And we help you find new opportunities in 17 major cities in North America, Europe, Asia, and Australia. Open to relocation? Let them know. Your privacy and autonomy in your job search is of utmost importance. And if you go check them out at the show's link, that's hire.com slash JavaScript Jabber, you can get double the hiring bonus that they offer. That's $600 instead of $300. So go check them out at hire.com slash JavaScript Jabber today. You want to kind of explain what it is and where you, where you got this from? Yeah, yeah. So I guess I can wind the clock back about well, five years ago. So I started I started programming professionally, um, and I was taking on contracts and doing stuff like that. And you know, I was doing a fair amount of JavaScript at the time, 
Um, but you know, that was mostly kind of stuff with here's a button click and here's an event and, you know, just try to get it in, back into your, your Django template and then, uh, send it off to the server. So this is kind of, you know, around that time, I guess, front end frameworks were picking up a little bit, but JavaScript as you know, m- many might remember was sort of the backwater language and was really just glue. And then, you know, it kind of came into its own to be a real client side, you know, language. And so, I was started seeing all that happen and got really into that. And, you know, I sort of moved away from Django and, and Rails stuff and started doing more stuff with the Backbone and Ember and then later React. And, you know, the whole time I was doing it, I was writing plenty of stuff in JavaScript that when I'd go back and read it and go, oh my goodness, what are, what is this? What am I doing? And I remember about a year or two, into my career, someone said, you know, you got to read this book. It's called Clean Code. Um, and they're like, it's, it's in Java. And I was like, oh, goodness, that's that's ancient. And I don't know. I don't know what the, if I can even read that. And um, so I started reading it and, you know, picked up some of the concepts. And I thought, oh, it's, it's pretty interesting. Um, I've seen some of this in my own code. And concurrently at that time, someone mentioned, you know, you should keep a code diary and write down the stuff that bothers bothers you about what you do or bothers you about what you see in a code base or in the world in general with code. And so I started doing that. And, you know, about, I'd say six or seven months ago, I was looking back in my code diaries and I was rereading clean code, uh, sort of a, my yearly pilgrimage towards it. And I thought, Hey, you know, there's not really much written about this in JavaScript. And there's a lot of problems in JavaScript that really are very much applicable to the idea of clean code concepts, even though it's not Java, it's JavaScript. So I thought, well, no one's talking about this. Let me just write it down. And, you know, I produced something that's kind of like a, yeah, a style guide. It's, you know, sort of a living, breathing, read-me document that goes through code smells, bad code, good code, and um, sort of just adapts clean code concepts and other things that I've sort of come to, you know, pick up in my own sort of ideas and put my own take on it. And yeah, people have really kind of flocked to it and have contributed a lot. And it's been, uh, it's been a pretty rewarding project. I absolutely love it. Um, I know when I first saw this, I put it in our Slack channel at work and we do a lunch and learn usually every week. And so uh, we took like a couple of weeks and just went through it as a team together. So it was really, really good for like getting everybody on the same page. That's great. That's wonderful. Well, That's one, awesome. one thing that I've seen is that, uh, you know, I've heard uh, Uncle Bob speak about so- solid principles and I've I've heard several other people speak about solid principles. And so um, it, it's kind of interesting just from the standpoint of they talk about these high level ideas, you know, like single responsibility or open close principle. Um, and you kind of get an idea of what it's about. But then, then to actually see somebody say, OK, um, you know, you don't necessarily call out, you know, because of single responsibility principle, we're doing this instead of that. But, um, you know, it it is, um, hey, we're going to do encapsulation this way or we're going to do, um, you know, conditionals this way. And you can kind of feel the flavor of it in very specific examples um, as opposed to being in a position where it's, oh, okay, I'm just going to do solid because, you know, single responsibility principle or, you know, the Liskoff um, substitutability principle. I can't even remember them all. But, (laughs) uh, you know, it's those kinds of things. And at the high level, it's like, okay, I get it. But then when you look at the actual code, then it's, 
okay, so how does this apply to this? You know, am I making these mistakes? And your examples are very concrete. Oh, if your code looks like this, you're making this mistake. And if your code, you know, looks like this, then you're handling these cases well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I I really kind of tried to put it in the best sort of example form I could. And, you know, JavaScript's great because you don't have as much visual noise because you don't have types. So you can kind of just see the actual business logic there. And, I've, and I learn very much through example. I'm, I tend to stray away towards from the theoretical. And I, I think a lot of people in the, you know, JavaScript community and, dev, you know, dev community at large are probably along that line, too, that they want to see here. Look, show me some actual code. And, you know, you mentioned Liskov substitution principle and that one, when you read the paper on it um, and the theory behind it, it's it's a little obtuse and it's very formal language. But then when you actually see it laid down, you go, oh, my goodness, I've I've done that before. And, uh, you know, that if you just see it written down as an example, it immediately clicks. Yeah, well, and you, you shared in the notes that you sent us the talk by Uncle Bob. And, you know, so he was talking about the Liskov substitutability principle and yeah you know he he immediately goes to squares and rectangles and you know the fact that the the structure of the code doesn't look the same and i always just assumed you know his example in his example that um you know the squares and rectangles would be substitutable because squares are rectangles but in the representation they don't parallelize and you can't make certain assumptions about it and he explains it and we'll put a link to the talk in the show notes um but yeah, I was like, oh, okay, I I really do get it. Um, it's not you have these two things that are related because one is a subset of the other. It's um, I can make the same assumptions about one set of code as the other set of code, and that's why I can substitute them, even though in the real world the things that I that they represent are substitutable. In implementation in code, they may not be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, so yeah, if you you know if you take it kind of to the sort of, I guess, philosophical level, it's really LSP, Liskov substitution principles, really kind of sort of in a baked down pragmatic version of what polymorphism is supposed to be. And you're supposed to be able to use, you know, your your objects um, that maybe they derive from, you know, some base class. And if this is JavaScript, you know, they can just extend some prototype, but they should be able to kind of be used um, the same way. And you shouldn't have to kind of go, uh oh, what is this? And, you know, get get a runtime error and go, oh, that's right. Yeah, I can't do this method on a on a square. You know, I can't call get area the same way because you calculate area on a square differently than you do on a rectangle, that kind of thing. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, that's yeah, that that principle's pretty good. Um and you know the solid principles sort of are the backbone of of clean code. But um, but yeah, I think the the book in the larger set of principles are are really awesome because that you know they cover everything from how do you name your variables all the way to how do you handle concurrency and and that breadth is pretty much covers most of what you're going to see as a as a developer and you know JavaScript being so ubiquitous um, it has all the same problems that you'd find in any language so. You have to think about how you can name your variables and how long your functions are and how you do, you know, how you do your classes. So solid principles apply there, too. So, yeah. 
I have more questions, so, but I want to give everyone else a chance. <laughs> the, the material that produced, it's all centered around this one GitHub repo. Is that right? Um, the material that, that I'm, that I'm covering, you mean, or yeah. Yeah. yes. So, yeah. So, and I guess, I guess y'all can link in the show notes, but yeah. So I basically, the project that I did was called a uh, clean code JavaScript. And yeah, so basically just adapting the clean code book and then some other concepts as well. And, you know, putting it all into the, the lingua franca of, uh, of JavaScript. Mm-hmm. So is everything that you've produced in this GitHub repo or are you producing any other materials? Um, I pretty much try to keep everything here. There's, um, there's sort of a larger talk that I've been working on and I guess really a project that kind of covers some of the ideas around what actually is a good architecture and how does clean code inform that. So I've, I've kind of chose to, to name it the, the three R's of architecture, which is readability, reusability, and refactorability. Um, and I, I kind of mentioned that, that phrase a few times in this project. I was just about to ask that um, because I hadn't, you know, I know those are all good things, but I hadn't really heard of like calling it software architecture pyramid. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I yeah, that's kind of so basically the the idea that I kind of had been thinking of for a while is, you know, how do you think hierarchically about about your code? And you know, clean code helps you pretty much at, at every level, but when you think about how you, you're gonna go develop an application, like if you're gonna do a shopping cart, um it, you can apply it to anything, but like if you take a shopping cart example you have at the very bottom of sort of this pyramid of ideas, you have readability. So, you know, is your code formatted well? Do you have good variable names? Your function's short. Can you just read the code? Does it look good? And you go, okay, I, I know what this is doing. Um, and then, you know, you start stepping up the pyramid and you think about reusability. So that's to say, you know, if I have a shopping cart application, I may have, you know, something that does a currency conversion. And, you know, I don't want to bake that that business logic into the 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 inventory, you know, class. I want that to be its own independent thing, because if you have a currency converter, it doesn't have much to do with your inventory or your shopping cart or your user pain or any any of that kind of thing. It's it's its own entity. And so you can test it by pulling it out. Um, you can control it. And, you know, that's one thing I've seen in the JavaScript world. And I did it a million times where. You know, when I would do the jQuery kind of, you know, spaghetti code in the beginning where you'd be handling an event that comes from, you know, the, the, the DOM and then you may do some sort of interesting logic on it. I was putting all the, those functions inside of the actual DOM manipulation code and the event handling code. So you do like a, a you know, a color picker and then all the sort of interesting stuff around hue saturation and value calculation was all baked in right there into the DOM stuff. And that's not very reusable because, you know, you could take your color uh, picker thing and move it over to React or Ember or something else. So so reusability is, a, you know, a very well-known concept in software, um, but it's, you know, it's a very important thing. And I think it's kind of hierarchically builds on top of readability because if you don't have readability, you don't have reusability as easily because people don't know what's, what's going on in your code if they can't see how it's named and such. And then I, I sort of... Uh, the last thing I mentioned is refactorability. And, you know, that's sort of the idea that 
you should be able to modify modules and you know do changes to them and not have it break something all the way over and maybe even some other organization because uh, I think we you know we've all done stuff where we'll we'll be working on let's say you know a shopping cart application and we change the way that the the button handler works or we change the way that the the currency is shown and then somehow it breaks something in the user panel and you're like how how did that happen like the, the, those two things aren't related so refactorability is you know about minimizing side effects it's about being very testable testability um really really informs refactorability because if you have your tests you can you can do you know what i call the friday night test where you you know, if you can go home on a Friday night after pushing your code and feel really good on the weekend, then you know you have pretty good refactorable, testable code. And that's sort of that's sort of the way I, I like to think of it. You know, it's not the the sort of pyramid, the three R's of architecture don't necessarily give you an architecture, but they're a way of guiding your thinking when you come up with something. I guess, you know, even to add to this, one thing that I really liked about it, I feel like this is excellent for, I mean, it's good for people of all levels, but especially for newer developers, because um, as somebody who hasn't been doing this for a long time, I get like a lot of emails and stuff with people saying, you know, should I start with React? Should I start with Angular 4? Should I, uh, <laughs> you know, just do vanilla JavaScript? And, um, you know, there's a lot of material out there to guide you on how to write, you know, idiomatic code for whatever framework you're using. But uh, like my recommendation is always to start with just vanilla JavaScript. And so there's really not anything like this out there uh, to learn, you know, good principles like that for just vanilla JavaScript. Yeah, that's, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. I think, you know, the JavaScript community has such amazing tools and it's probably has, in my opinion, you know, one of the best ecosystems out there. And there's a lot of other great languages and such, but JavaScript has such good tooling and it's easy to get uh, carried away with the tooling and, and think only in terms of the tools. But then, you know, you always always have to remember, you know, you're, you're a programmer, you're a developer, you're an engineer, you're making things that really are irrespective of languages. Because if you think about it really long and hard, you start to realize, oh, React or Ember or your database or express or any piece of your stack is just an implementation detail your your actual business logic and what makes your code awesome and unique and helps the world is irrespective of any kind of framework because the javascript community is going to change like it always does but you want your code to be breathable and livable and, and it's be able to react no pun intended to the changing world <laughs> and you want it to be able to you can take your currency converter and move it into uh somewhere else and I, you know, I think that that kind of discipline and, and principle is, um, you know, it's it's definitely you're always, always learning. And, and I certainly am. And, and you're always going to make mistakes and don't don't ever beat yourself up for it. But, um, you know, yeah, it's it's important to think about those those principles, because, like I said, the world's just going to change on you. So that that actually leads me to a discussion that we were having after Ruby Rogues this morning. So I record three podcasts on. Tuesdays, and uh, we were talking afterward about RSpec versus Minitest, which are two testing frameworks for Ruby and Rails. And the conversation basically came up that um, a couple of people really didn't like RSpec anymore because every time they upgraded Rails or upgraded RSpec, they'd have to refactor their tests. And so even though 
our spec is more readable, the maintenance issues, whenever you had to do an upgrade, were a problem. And where if you stick with the default mini test, it just kind of works. And I'm curious, you know, what's your take on that? You know, because you said, yeah, the world's going to change on you. So what if the way that the world changes creates fewer maintenance headaches in one area, but that one area means less readable code or tests? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think, you know, when you when you break it down, architecture is sometimes and often called the things that are hard to change about your code. And there are going to be things that are hard to change. Like it is hard to change an implementation language. So if you have, you know, you're working on, let's say, an airline software booking system and you write it in Node.js and then you have, you know, obviously JavaScript on the front end, it's going to be pretty hard to change that that Node.js backend or your front end to Elm. But architecture informs what's hard to do. But um, yeah, you know, your tooling, you should try to make it as implementation detail less as you can. Mm-hmm. So whether you choose to use uh, MongoDB or a classical relational database like MySQL, your database should be an implementation detail. Your your you know web server, if you're using Express or whatever, should be an implementation detail. And even you know your tests if you can. But there are going to be things that are hard to change. Like you know if you are using an assertion library. And that assertion library only does, you know, assert statements this way. And then there's another one that does it another way. Um, it can be hard to change because, you know, JavaScript doesn't have abstract classes or interfaces like other languages do. So people that are writing these libraries can't basically, you know, compile it to a, a specific type of interface. And then everyone kind of shares that. So people will do their own APIs. So it's going to be hard to change things sometimes. And I, I think, you know, the the feelings that people have around upgrading are valid and it's, it's tough, but try the best you can to keep the implementation details out because yes, you, you are going to change something sometime. One other thing I noticed on here is that your examples are not in classical ES5. I mean, you have like class Boeing 777 extends airplane, which Mm -hmm you know, is not ES5, you know, it's, it's not real JavaScript as uh, all of our friends named AJ would say. Um, <laughs> so, you know, was there a reason that you picked these, uh, building examples in these ways, as opposed to doing it in a more classical or global way, you know, something that works in every browser? Yeah, it's a good question. I, you know, so when I, when I published this, um, you know, I was just working on my own and I published this to Reddit and a few other sites. And I said, you know, what do you guys think? You know, I can have some feedback. And then it started getting shared around a lot. And then I woke up in the morning and then I had maybe 20 emails of issues and pull requests and things. And originally I had written it very ES5 like, and in fact, I didn't even use uh, ES lint on it, which I should have, because I was just writing this down in a markdown document for, you know, a long time. But, um, yeah, I think kind of the community, um, I, there's like 60 plus contributors on this, to, uh, really good feedback and help from people. And it kind of got steered towards the ES6 world, which, you know, for better or for worse is, um, you know, I guess a okay representation of where JavaScript is. But yeah, you're right. ES5 is certainly going to be much more compatible across the entire ecosystem of browsers and runtimes. Now, you mentioned something I was curious about, and that is contributors. Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, so I, I got 
um, let's see, I, forget, I think I posted this in November. And um, a few days after I posted, I started getting a lot of contributions and a lot of, you know, people with a ton of expertise, whether it was from, you know, Golang or C++ or they were very tried and true Java developers or, or just people just starting out and were confused by things that were in there. Um, and so I got a huge breadth of, of contribution and, and insight. And it was really great because, you know, the, like the old saying goes, it's like, you know, you only have X number of years experience, but with 10 or 100 people, you have thousands of years of experience. And there's no way you're going to ever have a thousand years of experience. And that's why working with people and getting your stuff out there and getting feedback is is really really important because you're not gonna you're not gonna think of everything. And I also imagine that you got a fair amount of. I mean, I mean, this is the type of topic that would generate a lot of very opinion based feedback as well, right? Yeah, yeah, it's very true. Yeah, I mean, in Clean Code, I think in the preface of of the book, it basically says you may violently disagree with certain things. And I didn't have anything that was, you know, commentary that was super negative, but yeah, there's a lot of opinions and I got strong opinions on, on sections that I think are perennially very controversial. And there was a lot of fruitful debate. There was times where it kind of broke down amongst contributors to being a little too negative and a little too critical. But for the most part, yeah, there was a lot of talk around stuff that was very, very fundamentally controversial and hard. So stuff like don't repeat yourself and, you know, no duplicate code. That's always going to be a controversial thing because, you know, the the idea of DRY, uh, don't repeat yourself, is that simply as it says, don't be duplicating code over the place because if you have a method that let's say, you know, back to our currency conversion does, does currency conversion in this one module and then it does it in another, you know, then you have to update both, right? Because let's say a currency conversion changes, right? And you've baked it in from US dollars to rupees and then now you have to change it in both places. So pulling it out into its own thing makes it so you only have to, you know, do it in one place. But I got a lot of feedback, which is really good around that. Because I'm I'm pretty staunch on that. I, anytime I see a chance to pull it out, I I do. But there's a lot of feedback, like, and it's very good feedback, which is that you got to be very careful when you start to separate your code out. Because if you make the wrong API and you've you know modularized a piece of code, well, everything's going to start depending on that API. And if you haven't thought it through well, well, now you have the same problem. Is if you change your API, you have to change tons of different places in your code base. Yeah. One other thing just to pile on to dry is that I've, I've used static analysis tools that will point out code that is structurally similar and say that those need to be dried up. They need to, you know, they repeat themselves, but because they handle two completely different contexts and completely different things, even though they structurally look similar, I want to keep them separate so that if I have to update one algorithm, I don't have to, you know, pull the other one out or do any major refactoring to make it work for both. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. If you have like a list example where you have a user list and then you have something like a customer list and mm -hmm. they both do very similar things on parsing the data and displaying it. But, you know, users and customers are going to have very different types of data and potentially very different kinds of algorithms to process that. 
you know, it could be very structurally similar, but, you know, if you over genericize it, then you can start running into cases where, and I mentioned this in the, in the clean code JavaScript project that where you start putting lots and lots of conditionals. And when you start seeing lots and lots of conditionals, um, especially in a generic function, you know, you're probably doing something wrong. There's a code smell there and it probably needs to be refactored. Mm -hmm. One other thing that you talked about in how this came about that I honestly had never heard of before, you know, I've been programming professionally for 10 years or so now, um, was the code diary. I mean, you know, you said, you know, it's just stuff that you like or don't like, or, you know, can, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Cause I'm curious what it is and what people can learn from doing something like that, especially new people. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I... are you looking to expand your skills, in mobile development, have an idea for the next angry birds app? Then you need to check out iOS Remote Conf, produced by the same team that brings you your favorite devchat.tv podcasts like Ruby Rogues and iFreaks. Join us for two days of jam-packed fun and learning streamed to you live May 17th and 18th. Go check it out at iosremoteconf.com. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Because I'm curious what it is and what people can learn from doing something like that, especially new people. Yeah, yeah. So... You know, I, when I was starting out, I had a friend that advised me and he said, you know, one of the things that I wish I had done was write down my thoughts and feelings about what I'm learning, what I've seen. And I thought, you know, it's pretty interesting because when you're in, you know, life in general, it's good to reflect, write a blog or, you know, write what you, your current thoughts are on social media and this and that. And I thought, yeah, it's, it's a pretty useful thing. And so I kind of structure it basically with three aspects and you know going in in that order i think of what did i learn today so sort of a til um what did i like about code that i saw today what did i you know think oh goodness this is you know cutting out hundreds of lines and this is really really awesome and helps me you know make my code more readable or whatever and then what's stuff that you don't like you know it can be your own code or it could be something else you saw in the code base and you know you don't have to write down every little bit of code and and copy stuff out of your code base but you know generally what principles and things have you seen that kind of you know maybe maybe bother you maybe are really appealing um you know and I, i've tried to do this you know as regularly as i can but you know like any kind of thoughtful reflection. You're not going to do it, you know, every, every single day. But I had a bunch of stuff that, that I had written down and thought of and I go, Oh, you know, this really is a lot of it is just about clean code. And, you know, some of it is about ecosystem things happening in the world. But I thought, yeah, let me, let me see what I can do with this and adapt it. So what are you hoping that people will learn from something like clean code JavaScript? I mean, is there some overarching lesson or is it just do this, not that? Yeah, I think so. That's a good question. Um, you know, there's there's a few key takeaways, and they kind of come up in all the concepts. Um, and you know, if you just take these concepts away, and that's all you remember, I think it's pretty useful. So, you know, the first thing is basically write code that shows its intent. You know, and so that that includes stuff like really good variable names, really good function names. 
um, well-named files, you know, files that aren't 8,000 lines long. We've all done that where you'll have, you know, your entire program in one file. Split it up, make it understandable, make it so where when you read someone's code, read your code, that it reads basically like, okay, yeah, I know what this does. You know, and there's going to be pieces that are business logic intense or algorithms that, you know, may need some sort of explanation. But try to try to write code that reads very, very clearly, like almost like a news article. Um, and so, you know, a secondary point to that is, you know, write code that does one thing. So if it's a function, make sure it does one thing. If it's a class, single responsibility principle, make it do one thing. Because when you have code that does one thing, it's much easier to grok what's happening. You don't think, oh, well, I have, you know, in this airplane booking reservation system, I have this one class that handles the bookings. But then what it also does is it does database validation on the customer request to make sure that, oh, okay, what if they take a flight on this day, but then there's, you know, airport problems sometimes here and weather and this. And if you have functions that are doing this, where they're basically doing everything you can imagine that's maybe related or maybe not, pull those things out, do just one thing. Um, and then, you know, I think kind of a final point on clean code is, is be consistent. Um, and consistency matters a lot because you are going to be one person on hopefully a team that where you are one single contributor and people are going to be looking at your stuff and you are going to also be looking at their stuff and you're going to read, you know, tons and tons more code than you will ever write. And that's something I think that stuck with a lot of people, which is you are going to be reading code much more than you're going to be writing code. So be consistent with how you name things, be consistent with the kinds of, uh, you know, domain uh, specific names you give your variables and your functions and be consistent about the formatting. You know, formatting is a big thing. And, you know, if your code is all sorts of scattered around and you have braces on, on, one line and then, oh, you put them next to the actual, uh, you know, whatever's invoking that and, and you don't have any consistency around that, that can be a lot of visual noise that distracts from just reading the code. So I think those three things, if you don't take away anything specific, if you just take those away, those inform a lot of what you will do, regardless of if it's a JavaScript or not. And, you know, I think that's kind of what I would want people to take away because that's something I wish I had just learned, you know, on day one. So I feel like this is like the inevitable question. Do you have any tips on uh, conveying the importance of spending a little bit of time on this kind of stuff to product? Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I've written, so personally I've written plenty of code that when I look back, I go, Oh goodness, you know, it's, that's not my favorite, uh, favorite code that I've ever written. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, when you write code and when I've written code, it's been what's more important seems to be and it's always going to be how, you know, meeting your deadlines, getting the requirements done. And then secondarily, it's making sure that it's, you know, readable, reasonable, refactorable, because when you're developing a product, um, everyone else you're working with, whether it's designers or, or product managers or any kind of business person or customer success, whatever it is. Everyone cares about, you know, what does the program help you do, help the world do? And it may not even be on people's minds, and it probably isn't that, well, how easy is it to, to modify this code? How easy is it to add a new feature? 
because as you get more and more code in your code base and on your product, you are going to find inevitably that it can get much harder to add new features. Um, you, you, in your, when you start out on a product and you start out on a code base, you think it should always get easier and it should, that should be our guiding light our North star that it should always get easier because when you start developing um, a product, you start adding interesting libraries that are very reusable that can handle, oh, this new thing that we may encounter later on. And it should get easier, but oftentimes you find it just gets harder and harder. Yep. And, you know, so when you're developing a product and think about, think about how it can be reusable, think about the, you know, how well this reads to other people, because if you slow anyone down and event, inevitably you, you can be slowed down by your own code. If you slow anyone down, um, you know, it, it can make the adding something new and helping your users out. It can make that tougher. And that's, you know, you definitely don't want that. So, so I was curious, obviously, ahead, uh, thanks. So I was curious, uncle Bob's book used Java and Java is strongly typed. JavaScript is dynamically typed. Um, were there any points that you found that you feel like the rules for clean code differ on JavaScript because it is a dynamic language, um, or another way to put this question, do you feel like the rules for clean code differ for dynamic languages versus statically typed languages? Yeah, I think they do. I think um, it's more when you get down into stuff around organizing modules. So JavaScript, for example, doesn't have interfaces or, or abstract classes. Something like Java will have things that are, are called interfaces. So you can have one class or, or multiple classes that implement the same interface. They can be used the same way. Um, and this is how you can achieve things like dependency inversion, where you basically have two uh, separate modules. They may do separate things, um, but they both implement the same interface. So I think one of the things I mentioned in here was um, you can have a request module and that request module could do some fancy new WebSocket thing, or it could do some sort of IO that we've never seen before, like communicate through space. But it all they all implement or, you know, dot request. And, you know, your HTTP requester is going to do the same thing. Well, in JavaScript, you don't have an interface. So you don't have something statically typed and says, OK, when I compile this piece of code, it's going to make sure it does everything that in this interface is supposed to do. And so it's the onus is on us as developers doing JavaScript to say, OK, this is has to implement this. And that can be a hard thing to sort of um, come to terms with because JavaScript allows you to iterate very, very quickly. When you don't have static types, and you don't have interfaces and, and that kind of thing, you can just go. And that is a very powerful tool, but it can be deadly because you may not think about, well, what is my, my fancy WebSocket IO requester supposed to do? You know, am, am I supposed to name my functions like this or am I supposed to name it like that? Um, so interfaces and static types give you a lot of robustness and, you know, back to the sort of three R's, they give you a lot of refactorability because you can be pretty sure, not always 100%, but you can be pretty sure that if you make a change or you implement, you know, a new class that uses this kind of interface that, you know, you're not going to have some you know, crazy breaking change. Well said. Yeah, I agree. That's a, that's a good summary. Yeah, good. 
Is is there a way for people to know if their code is improving? Let's say they go in and they say, you know what, I'm going to do, you know, I'm going to make sure I'm doing the top five things on here. And then, you know, how, how do they measure that? Do they just keep tally marks of how many WTFs they run into or? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was, yeah. So that was what you're referring to was uh, if you, you know, if you haven't seen the projects, basically there's a picture that sort of leads into the book, uh, Clean Code, that is basically how do you, how do you measure in a quantifiable way what clean code looks like, what good architecture looks like. And they say, it's the number of you know WTFs and that you see when you're reading reading uh, through someone's code or your own code, and yeah, that's a very hard thing, right? Because you know we're used to in the ideas of computer science of being very very explicit and exact about things. So when you do an algorithm, you learn things about time complexity and space complexity, and you can measure things in O, o of n notation and such. But in architecture and, and programming and software in general. You almost don't ever do that. You you get maybe down into the weeds and you're thinking about, you know, how long this program is going to take to run X or Y. But really, you know, it's sort of the art of computer science. That's what clean code and, and architecture is all about. So it's going to be hard to say. And in fact, you know, you may think that other people's code isn't, you know, like yours or yours isn't like, you know, there isn't. It's, you know, that human aspect of it is always going to be there. And that's why it's important to, you know, set team rules and and talk to each other, communicate a lot, because, yeah, it's it's going to be hard to say what's clean and what's and what's not. But I think, you know, there's sort of basic heuristics you can do. Like I was mentioning the Friday night test where if you could push your code on a Friday night and feel really good about it and sleep well on the weekend, you know, your, your code is probably pretty robust. If you can make a change and you know that, okay, it's not going to affect something that, you know, you know, Sally or Bob or whoever is working on, you know that, okay, this code is probably pretty clean, but you, it's hard to get a, an objective quantifiable measure on it. If anybody wants uh, their, to have their code critiqued, I'm sure that there's it's easy to find people that will tell you how much you suck or whatever it is that you do. That's coding or anything, really. Yeah. I mean, humans are good at that. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the old saying, right? If you want to know something on the internet, don't ask a question. Just post the wrong answer. <laughs> <laughs> so true. People uh, will always want to correct you. A friend I don't of mine, think I've heard that, but that's awesome. A friend of mine once yeah. was talking about building an app that would do code reviews for people. And basically the whole idea was you would submit your code no matter what you submit it would says it would say this sucks and then would make up a bunch of reasons <laughs> yeah 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 if you want free code reviews just post your code and say this is the best code that's ever been written yeah <laughs> that's free yeah. code reviews right there <laughs> yeah right yeah that would be an interesting service right you could just put a make a slack bot thing for it and post it it's an uh -huh. interesting business model yeah i i think It'll be interesting to see where the future takes us because, you know, we're, I think I mentioned in the, in the project, it's, you know, we're only like 50 years into software. I mean, it, it, when you look at the amount of human creation in other areas, like actual architecture, which goes back thousands and thousands of years, there's more codified practices and there's, you know, more understanding around things of what not to do and what to do. And we're only like 50 years in and we're still figuring out stuff all the time. I mean, there's stuff when I started out in JavaScript that I thought, oh, this is totally the way we're always going to do this. 
And then something like React came along and I was like, oh my God, Flux? And then I can't imagine my life without it. And there's going to always be stuff like that. And so it'll be interesting to see where it goes. Maybe there is something in the future that's machine learning based and it's aggregated, you know, millions and millions of lines of code and then somehow can say, oh, you know what? This doesn't reveal intent. So this isn't reusable. Your API is too big or this code sucks, you know. It'll be interesting to see where it goes, but I bet maybe we'll have something objective in 50 years. Well, the other thing related to that um, that came up in the talk that you posted to our notes uh, that Uncle Bob gave was at the very beginning, he was asking how many of you have been programming for one year, five years, 10 years. And then he basically pointed out that the number of programmers in the world basically doubles every five years. So we're essentially... Uh, always an industry full of amateurs. And I thought that mm-hmm. was very interesting too. So how, how do we perpetuate this kind of learning down to, you know, the, the person that, you know, the two people who are going to come in and replace me over the next 10 or 15 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That was a really good point that he made. And it's, you know, something, you know, I, I really agree with. And yeah, I think it's sort of a values thing, right? Because, you know, in other areas, other industries, I mean, I haven't worked in actual architecture, but I assume that, you know, when you're building, you know, a real physical building, there are things and practices that are basically best practices and they're culturally ingrained in what you do and what it means to be a professional. And there's still a lot of, you know, this is my idea. This is how I do it. This is how we've done it. That kind of attitude in software, because it's it's still so young and I think that we we do prescribe a lot of things in software and we prescribe some good things, but the, we don't always prescribe um, great, I guess, engineering thinking. Right? It's, it's sort of an afterthought. So we talk a lot about in computer science that you need, like I was saying, to think about time complexity, space complexity. You need to think about how algorithms and data structures work at the fundamental level. And then that will kind of guide what you do when you make a program or make an engineering decision. And it does. It's not that it's unimportant, but I think we don't also, you know, pair with that the idea that, hey, when you're actually engineering something, there's a lot more at a sort of meta level that you need to be thinking about. Um, And I think that's sort of a cultural thing that just has to come along. And I think, you know, I think it is. And I, I think that the world of software has gotten so much better. I remember when I was young trying to program stuff and it was, I was doing, you know, visual basic and all sorts of, you know, stuff in C and Perl. And I remember how much it's changed since then. It was very hard to reuse code. I mean, code was hardly even, you know, versioned that I saw and there wasn't an easy way to exchange code. And heck, I didn't, I didn't even use version control. A lot of us didn't. Right. So there's things that we've learned and I think we'll continue to learn, but yes, to foster, anyone new coming in, I think that, yeah, you got to think about um, sort of the art behind the computer science. That's a good value to have. All right. right. Well, are you trying to figure out how to stay current with Ruby and Rails? I'm putting on a two-day online conference called Ruby Remote Conf. You can check it out at rubyremoteconf.com. Like I said, it's a two-day conference where you can come and listen to speakers and experts from all around the world talk to you about issues pertaining to Ruby and web development. We have an online Slack channel, a roundtable discussion on Zoom, and all of the talks are given over Google Hangouts, and all of the talks will be streamed to you live. 
Come check us out at rubyremoteconf.com. All right, right. well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Amy, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure, I can go. Uh, So the first thing I was going to pick, I just got uh, my flights all situated for RevComp. It's June 1st and 2nd, so that was going to be my first pick. And then another pick, my food one for this week, uh, this brand of chocolate. I don't think I've picked this before. It's called Lily Sweets. But they have uh, dark chocolate that is sweetened with uh, stevia. So it's like if I want some dark chocolate, that's what I try to go for. It's a little bit healthier since I try not to eat a lot of sugar. Uh, And then my other one is a blog post I saw, uh, How to Write a Good Vim RC. And as somebody newer who has played around with Vim, uh, like a lot of times I'll go look at different examples and I don't necessarily understand some of the lines in there. So the opening line of this says, uh, don't put any lines in your VimRC that you don't understand. So he just breaks down uh, his VimRC and what everything in there means. So if you're looking to get started with that, I thought this was an excellent blog post. So I'll put a link for all that stuff in the show notes and that's it for me. My brain already hurts just thinking about an article like that. <laughs> like I've looked in my Vim, I've looked in my VimRC, and holy cow! <laughs> it's good though for breaking it down. Nice, Joe. What are your picks? Uh, all right. So, um, I think it should be obvious that we should pick. Somebody should be picking the clean code book, and uh, <laughs> there's some related books that are definitely. If you're into this topic at all, which you should be, The Clean Coder by the same author, The Pragmatic Programmer, and Code Complete, all fantastic books uh, in this category. So I definitely want to pick all of those. Lastly, I went and saw Kong this last weekend, and although I doubt we'll see it up for Best Picture, (laughs) I think it was pretty fun to watch. So those are my picks. All right, Corey, what are your picks? So uh, my first pick is a book called In the Plex, which is all about Google and how it got started. Uh, Very fascinating read, learning about how PageRank came to be and all the stories that happened behind the scenes. Um, I've also been thinking this week about focus and um, a quote that uh, has been in my head, which is from the book Paradox of Choice, which says, Choice has made us not freer, but more paralyzed, not happier, but more dissatisfied. Um, I put out a blog post this week about um, working on a single monitor, which is a very controversial uh, idea, but I've found that working on one monitor is helping me be more focused. Um, So uh, an interesting idea, but uh, this idea of of removing choices from our lives can be a way to um, actually focus more on a single task and get things done. So those are my two. All right. I'll jump in with a couple of picks. Uh, the first thing that I want to uh, quickly pick is uh, a while back, we had a JavaScript Jabber forum that never really took off. Um, I think there were several reasons for that, but one of the main reasons was that I have a really bad habit of not logging into stuff. Like I have to log in to check my email. So I check it like twice a week um, and I make myself do that. So <laughs> Uh, that said, um, I find that something like Slack tends to work better because a lot of developers are already in Slack. So I've set up a JavaScript Jabber Slack, um, and I'm going to be inviting the panel to it today. 
But um, anyway, if you want to go ahead and jump in on that, um, I'll have a link for it in the show notes. Um, you can also just go to javascriptjabber.com slash slack and you can get on the sign up page there. Just sign up. I'm just doing 10 bucks a month uh, to get in. And basically what that does is it keeps the trolls out. Um, it allows me to control, you know, who's in there and what's going on a little bit better. But the other thing is, is that I'm hoping that I can get 50 or so people in there and then use that money to actually pay for some industry expert, like maybe uncle Bob or somebody to come talk to us for an hour or so. Um, and I find that it's easier with some of these folks to actually pay them to come. So, so that's what I'm kind of looking to do with that money is kind of create a place where we can all, uh, keep up and, and talk about some of the things that we talked about on the show. So, uh, like I said, go check it out, uh, javascriptjabber.com slash slack. Um, the other thing that I'm going to pick, and this is related to that setup, um, is AWS Lambda. So, uh, Slack has an unpublished API you can use to invite people to your Slack team. And there's not really a great way to hit that except for maybe as a direct, uh, post to the URL. And I just put a function into AWS Lambda and then told Zapier to call it. So when somebody signs up for that Slack channel, um, it goes through Zapier to AWS Lambda and then hits Slack and sends the invite out. So you get an invite pretty much right away. Um, but it's pretty cool and I've been pretty happy with that. Um, the last pick I have is the framework that I used to get it all deployed, made it a whole lot easier. It's called serverless and, uh, it's, it's pretty freaking awesome and it's reasonably simple too. So there were a few things I had to do to get NPM modules, uh, exported so that they would go into Lambda, but it was like two steps in the config file and that was it. So uh, I, I was really, really happy with that. We'll probably get the uh, maintainer of that project on the show. But yeah, those are things that I've been playing with that I've been really digging. Uh, Ryan, what are your picks? Yeah, so my first pick is you know something that maybe some of y'all have seen. I guess it came out a few months ago. Uh, it's called Prettier. And I think it's a really, really great uh, JavaScript formatter. And I know that there's a lot of, uh, I guess, industry weight behind it now. And I mentioned in my clean code project about formatting and being consistent. And, you know, there's no better way of being consistent than just automating it. And so Prettier is, is really great. There's a number of other languages that do automatic formatting, which are really great, like Golang does it and Elm. And it, I can say from experience, it's just so great that you can just, you know, be there in the morning and having your coffee and not thinking and just not even indenting your code and just boom, 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 and then save. And then it's automatically formatted. It's nothing feels better just to get the details out of the way. Um, my second pick is um, something that y'all probably seen too. It's called a Crete React app. And I've found that that is really, really helpful when I'm just doing a project really, really quickly. And I just want to get stuff going and it'll take care of all the dependency stuff. So you don't have to think about which of the 800 boilerplates you're supposed to use for React. Um, it's very good. And then it gives you the option to what they like to call eject, which is a really fun term. And then you can just get all the dependencies you need and go away with it. And it's really great. Um, and then my third pick is non-programming related, although it's somewhat related in that it's about human psychology and that's uh, thinking fast and slow and that's a that's a book that was published a few years ago by daniel kahneman and he won the uh the nobel prize in uh, economics and it goes in a lot of really cool interesting things about 
how we think as human beings and how we rely on heuristics and biases that can oftentimes cause a lot of trouble for us and people around us. And so I think it's very useful. And I think thinking about human psychology is as a developer, maybe not the most native thing you're used to, but what we do is for humans and we do it with other humans. And so if you can think about other people and you can empathize and understand, you can become a much better programmer. Nice. All right. Well, if people want to follow you on Twitter or Facebook or not Facebook, um, anyway, if they want to see what you're doing on GitHub and that kind of stuff, um, where do they go? Yeah. So if you want to see me on GitHub, if you go to github.com slash Ryan McDermott, and then on Twitter, I stay pretty active. Uh, my username is Rikonoclast. And that's, uh, that's pretty much, pretty much it for me on the interwebs. All right. Well, thank you for coming and thanks for putting this together. It's been really interesting to look at and learn from. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, thanks. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.